I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Retired Michigan State agronomist Jerry Greiger credits more than three decades of no-till on his 140-acre farm with higher yields, improved soil structure, higher organic matter, and better water holding capacity. In this first installment of a two-part series of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Greiger about many of the lessons learned from decades of working with farmers to improve no-till techniques and equipment. Join in as they discuss early herbicide programs that are coming back into use nowadays, how his thinking on banding nutrients evolved over the years, what he calls transitional no-till versus true no-till, how he accidentally killed alfalfa fields with lime, and much more. So tell us, Jerry, a little about your background, where you grew up, what, where you went to school, etc. Well, I grew up in Gratiot County, which is north of Lansing, and about 35 miles from Michigan State. I went to school in Michigan State in 1974 in the Ag Tech program on environmental technology. I graduated with a two-year degree in that, and then I transferred my credits over and earned a four-year degree in crops and soil science and graduated in 1978 with a bachelor's degree for crop and soil science and agronomy. Then after that, I went to work while I was in school. I worked about 20 hours a week. I got a WAE job for NRCS. I used to be soil conservation service back then. and right. well, They were doing a lot of things with engineering, so I did a lot of tile drainage work, tile designs, so forth, waterways, ag waste system, manure storage, and erosion control structures. And I had quite an engineering hat. Plus, I was a draftsman in the state office. Okay. Uh, putting together standard designs for the engineering department. So, yeah, it was quite a exciting time, actually. Got outside more. So, kind when of a you fun did- job. Yeah, when you say Gratiot County, do you have an Ithaca address? Yes, uh, just okay. south of Ithaca, about five miles, right by the North Star Golf Course on 127. Been up there a number of times. I'll have to look for you next time. You're ahead of me. I graduated from Michigan State in 1961 in dairy science. But Well, you're just a young fella, though. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> So did you always work in the state office, or were you out in the county No, I, tr- I, I worked all over the state, actually. You know, when you take in an internship with NRCS, they move you around. I worked in Carroll, uh, up in the Thumb, and did a lot of 
erosion control structure work up there one summer. Then I worked down in Richmond, down by the northern end of Detroit, and watched what Urban Sprawl was doing to that, Macomb County. Then I worked over in Grand Rapids as an area agronomist after all that for 10 years. And then I finally went to the state office. I worked in Stanton, too, for a year, and then I worked in the state office for, oh, too long. <laughs> about 25, 30 years. Yeah. Well, I, I actually know where, where Richmond is because I grew up on a dairy farm at Lake Orion in Oakland County. Right oh, next sure. And yeah, sure. uh, the old farm now, I was the sixth generation on the farm, but it's all houses now. Well, yeah, that's the way it was going. I reviewed a lot of those house development projects. They'd come through for analysis, and even though it was prime farmland, it seemed like they didn't care. They went ahead and Right. Developed it anyway. It's kind of sad. Right. You know, because... No doubt about it. So how long did you spend in the state office as the NRCS state agronomist? I took that position in, let's see, well, that's been a while ago, right? 1989, I believe. Okay. Well, you you had that for quite a while. And you just recently retired at the end of 2020, right? Yeah, I retired, yeah, 2019. So tell me a little about the history of no-till and get, and cover crops and strip-till, getting it going in Michigan and what it took, well, what you did. state conservationists at the time that made me the area agronomist, uh, he sent me to Grand Rapids with the idea that he wanted me to promote more no-till. And uh, a guy named Homer Hillner came after him shortly, and he was a state conservationist, and Homer was out of Pennsylvania. So one of the best things Homer did for us, some of us there in the state, I was one of them fortunate enough, he paid for us a trip to attend no-till field day at State College at Penn State. What an eye-opener that was. We got on some dairy farms that had been no-tilling for five years, plus we got to meet Dr. Lynn Hoffman, who was promoting, uh, doing a lot of research there at the agronomy farm with no-till wheat, no-till alfalfa, no-till oats, no-till soybeans, no-till corn. And we got to see all the research and talk to Lynn, and it was pretty pretty exciting. And talk to the dairy farmers especially because they were, you know, dairy farming was tough there. That was the 80s, you know. Right. Remember we had the dairy buyout, and a lot of our dairy farms were going out of business. Well, you come from a dairy farm, I don't have to yep. tell you. Right. So, you know, so these guys were making a go of it uh, with no-till. And uh, so we came home with all that on arsenal of knowledge. And probably one of the best things we came home with was the Penn State Agronomy Guide. Sure. Because, you know, weed control is heavily dependent on herbicides, and they had a lot of recipes in there already for no-tilling all these different crops. And I still mm-hmm. have that old beat-up book yet today. The binding's all gone on it in pieces, but I still like having it around. It's it's still a lot of good information in there. And I used it to make a lot of recommendations under SP53, I think it was, which was a cost-share program for no-till. They had it going at, on the west side of the state. Well, the whole state had it, but I would write 25 herbicide prescriptions in one day back then, you know. Sure. For different farms that were getting ready to go no-till, we'd go out and look at 
see what their weed pressure was, talk to them about what rotation they wanted to use. And that was before Roundup, you know. So right. You had Paraquat. We were, yeah, we were using a lot of Paraquat. We were working closely with uh, Ortho, you know. Yeah. A guy named No-Till Bill. No-Till Bill Colville. Yeah, Bill. He was, yeah. Right. You remember, maybe you probably remember Bill, and there was another guy. He was down in uh, Marshall. I can't think of his name right now. That's my age showing, but he was Roger Colter. Roger okay. Colter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those two guys. We held a lot of winter meetings, probably as many as twenty-five every winter around nineteen county area on the west side of the state. Went over a lot of the weed control. And some of the other aspects of fertility, managing no-till like a system, you might mm-hmm. say, you know. And that was an exciting time, pretty exciting time, really. Get us some regional meetings, you know, and the D.C.s worked with me, and I, a lot of districts were renting out equipment drills because, you know, equipment cost was a big barrier. You know, right. 80s, again, was cash flow was pretty tight for folks. Yeah. We had farm aid and all that, remember. And so a lot of folks would lease lease the equipment from districts or another farmer, and so we'd go out and help them set that equipment up, get it running for them, and then turn them loose to do their own, do their own no-till with it. Yeah. Or they had an operator that ran it that didn't spend <coughs> on the district. So yeah, it was an exciting time. We were keeping track of the acres through the uh, tillage transect survey back then, and and we were watching the acres of no-till just grow you know on that 10-year period i was there well when you went to penn state you had a you spent a good day with lynn hoffman because there was a guy that did research but it was all practical research that somebody could use oh yeah it was fabulous uh we actually had lynn come out a couple times he gave us some great presentations at some regional meetings in kalamazoo and uh, greenville he talked about no-till alfalfa and all the other things they were doing there Pennsylvania, and it really got people really interested in trying some different different no-till crops, you know. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned early on that you wrote a lot of uh, herbicide recommendations, and I think today a lot of NRCS people say we can't do that anymore. Well, that's because that's because the agency put a policy together that says yeah. you're no longer to make. Herbicide recommendations. As far as I'm concerned, as an employee, one of the worst things they ever did. You know, it, it took us right out of the no-till environment because Extension wasn't giving us good recommendations at that time, and we had to rely on our own wits to to make it work. And yeah, it's just it's kind of a sad deal, but that's the way it still is. So. Right. Well, when I was in school, it was kind of the tail end of Ray Cook in crops and soils, and he was really kind of the guy that got minimum tillage started. I'll pull out yeah. plant Ray. Yep, and we <laughs> we did that on my home farm for two years. Okay. And, uh, okay. If yeah. you wanted to, if you wanted to ruin your kidneys, I think that was about the best way there was yeah. to do it. But yeah, uh, anybody anybody that hasn't ever mowboard plowed. Wouldn't know what you're talking about if you, but if you mowboard plowed, you're exactly right. You wreck your your body mowboard yeah. plowing. But the yeah. people don't know what we're talking about. You would plow, and the next trip would be at the planter. You wouldn't work the ground at all. But it yeah. it kind of yeah. it kind of got yeah. Yeah, it kind of got minimum tillage started. 
So Michigan State, I take it, wasn't very big on no-till in those days. No, in fact, the, some of the extension people, like the guy here in Mount Pleasant, uh, Tony Pashonic, and sure. the other guy that was down in uh, Charlotte, Warren Cook, mm-hmm. they were trying to get no-till. They did a lot of no-till promoting, but they were on the outside edge of extensions philosophy. They yeah. they were kind of looked down upon for it, I think, unfortunately. Right. Well, so, it's interesting because you, you, I've been at this a long time. We started No-Till Farmer <laughs> in 1972, and I could probably name a half dozen universities pretty much in the Midwest where if you wanted to learn something about no-till, you went to the ag engineers. You didn't go to crop and soils because the ag engineers were kind of the guys leading the no-till movement, like in Ohio and in Nebraska for sure. Yeah, Nebraska, uh, the whole Paul Jossel, Paul Jossel out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I had it. That's interesting that you say that. I I got to go to the 50th uh, no-till celebration in Worcester at Ohio State, you know, and uh, I got to talk about transitional no-till, how that's not true no-till. Mm-hmm. But uh, I got the opportunity through Randall Reader to meet uh, Grover Triplett. Yep, yep. Grover Triplett and his buddy Don Myers both were there, and we yeah. had supper together. And they talked about the first no-till they did that in that hill country in southern Ohio where there was a lot of bad right. erosion. Right. Some farmer killed out a sod field, and then he... They got, they took a two-row planter, and they went up and down that side field planting corn, and it was so steep, Don had to get off the tractor and um, get on the front of the tractor so it didn't tip <laughs> over backwards, but Grover was driving it. I thought, boy, well, that was interesting. Right. But by, by dumb luck, they fell into the fact that they had started a no-tilling in a field that already had its soil structure healed, it already had, you know, a lot of things going for it. The food web was there to to supply nutrients, and uh, it was mellow from being in pasture all those years. And they made it work. Yeah, just by dumb luck. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Well, in the uh, early seventies, must have been about nineteen seventy-three or so. I went to Ohio and spent a day with. Uh, Glover Triplett and Van Dorn, and they they took me out to some fields to look some, and we, we were in one field where they had planted corn, but they had uh, the farmer had taken off a hay crop before they'd planted corn with big round bales, and the field was so steep that all the bales had rolled down to the bottom of the field. <laughs> well, that's steep. Holy smokes! Right, yeah. and we and I can remember in the seventies there was some guy over by Madison that was planting a strip next to a highway that was so steep that they hooked a chain onto the uh, uh, barricade along the road so the tractor wouldn't go down the hill. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know till anything like that. Unfortunately, all my stuff pretty flat at home. But. Right. So where you farm, is that a family farm that's been in the family for generations or not? Yeah, it's interesting that you were doing this podcast. Uh, at this time of year, Memorial Day, it's it's kind of a happy but sad day for me because 40 years ago, I found my dad dead under his corn planter on Memorial Day. Oh, so wow. That's how I got indicted into becoming a farmer. I tried tillage farming 
350 acres and working a full-time job and found out that wasn't going to work. Right. That I didn't have enough manpower to do that right. on my own. Right. I hired my brother to help me a little bit those first couple of years, but he had enough of that. He didn't want to work that hard. So mm-hmm. I had the chance then to get a no-till planter, and I did, and converted everything over to no-till in the process of two, three years there from 81, and haven't looked back since. Right. I buried the plow with Dad, I always said, <laughs> on, his, on his tombstone as a moldboard plowed field. I buried it with him. We'll come back to Frank and Jerry in a moment, but I'd like to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. For today's short item about no-till, I got a letter the other day from uh, somebody running the No-Till Association in Africa, and they mentioned that they had a consultant working with them from Western Australia, and it turned out to be somebody I know, Bill Crabtree, who's talked several times at the National No-Tillage Conference and has made a number of trips to the U.S., and anyway, he's uh, spent more than 35 years working with No-Till, ran the association down there. He's known as No-Till Bill in Australia, but importantly, he's shown the ability to consistently think outside the box and finding new ways for making No-Till work. And he's spent much of his career expanding the No-Till acres in Australia and has worked with many of the country's No-Till pioneers. But what's interesting about him is a few years ago, he decided to practice what he preaches with no-till and he purchased 7,500 acres near the edge of the desert in the western area of Australia. And some 95% of his cropping program includes no-tilling continuous wheat, but he also no-tills canola, trillet, kale, and lupins. But I'm most impressed with what he's done and here's a guy who, educator who now practices what he preached and he's still working as a consultant with many countries around the world. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Jerry Greiger. So when I was trying to track you down, I talked to, I think, Gary Lee in the state office. I asked him a few questions, and he said, well, when Jerry left, he took a reservoir of information with him. uh, About all we know about no-till went with Jerry. But what's going on with no-till in Michigan? Is it growing still? In some places, I think so, Uh but in other places, it's going backwards, I think. And part of that is the current culture of farm subsidies mm-hmm. supporting to get big or get out. Sure. You know, I, I can look around my neighborhood. And you probably can go back to Macomb County and do the same or Oakland. And yeah. You can see where there were a number of small farms and a number of small farmers, and they're not there anymore. Right. Everything's gotten big, and along with big has gotten bigger equipment. Right, and and a lot of a lot of tillage has come with that because 
the farmers that are big with tillage equipment, they're afraid to dull till because they're afraid of failing. Sure. And there's no real guiding hand there. Uh, Michigan State doesn't really support no till that much yet. So, uh, except down at, I will say down at KBS, they do have some long term research, bless their heart, that's showing that no till is pretty positive for them on their soils down there. But, so, this would be Hickory Corners? Yeah, oh, Hickory yeah. Corners. Yeah. Okay. The, the folks doing the research down right. there are doing a great job. They've very, been very supportive and they've had some pretty good results with no till. So, mm-hmm. And the uh, west side of the state where I was at, I think, uh, Bob Keatsman, you know Bob uh, Keatsman No-Till, he uh, took up the Ross and Coulter system after and modified it so that he could sell Coulters. And uh, mm-hmm. he's been a big promoter of that No-Till system in the west side of the state. And he's had different farmers come back to him and say, Bob, if it wasn't for you and your No-Till, I'd have lost my farm. Yeah. Where's he so, located? He's uh, by Clarksville. Okay. Clarksville Experiment Station. Uh, okay. Right there, on, on just off the highway on Old Old Grand River. Okay, good. It, he's easy to find. There's a sign up. He was an old dairy farmer, too. There's a sign up in front of his place. Those kids, cows, confusion. <laughs> when you see that sign, you're at Bob's house. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but he's getting out of it. But he's going to sell the business to a father-son team, last I heard. Mm-hmm. And they're going to continue to make colders and support the zone till type system. Yeah. What about strip till? I never did too much. I mean, we called it zone till. You know? Right. We, All right. I worked with Ray Rawson on his zone till system for a lot of years because, oh, Ray initially it was just a single colder, two and a half inch wavy, no no till planter on a John Deere seven thousand. Well. Ray farms some pretty good hills there in Isabella County. And right, just north of Mount um, Pleasant. Right. North of Mount Pleasant by Farwell. And uh, yeah. when he'd go down the those steep hills with his John Deere 7000 planting corn, he'd notice all his dry fertilizer because he was using dry fertilizer at the time. Him and his uncle Al were had run two six rows, and they were leaving fertilizer on the surface on those side hills. Well, they mm-hmm. were so severely eroded from moldboard plowing already that they had a high bulk density and they were so hard that the you know the double disc openers there wasn't enough weight on that John Deere 7000 to push right. to push those double disc openers in the ground and place the fertilizer two by two so I looked at Ray one day and I said Ray I said why are you such a damn Paris <laughs> what are you talking about? I said, why don't you put another colder on there ahead of that double disc opener and see what it does for you. Mm-hmm. Well, out of that, he put another colder on. And, why? That worked pretty good. So I said, why don't you try a narrower colder? Well, he put a narrower colder on. That even worked even better. So out of that came Matt, and then he had the desire to become a one-pass system. He didn't sure. like weed and feed with 28%. And there was a lot of research coming out of the Midwest universities, out of Penn State, out of Ohio State, out of Purdue, from Mannering and Griffith and those guys that said if you inject 28% where there's residue on the surface, you can bump up your corn yield by 40 bushel an acre over weed and feed. Mm-hmm. I shared that research data with Ray, and, and Ray then came up with the idea, well, let's inject this 28% on the opposite side of 
from the dry fertilizer at, at planting time. So he came up with a system to do that. It just consisted of a tube and a squeeze pump at that time to just drop that 28% on the surface. But that was okay, but it splashed that 28 on the planter and was pretty corrosive, you know. Mm-hmm. So sure. had to wash his planter off every day. Plus, you look like you've been in the mud bath by the end of the day because it all stick to your clothes. And it wasn't the best best deal, but it still was better than weed and feed that he got a good response to it. So I said, well, okay, well, let's go to the anhydrous knife, inject it. Let's put a colder on there and put an anhydrous knife on there, and a tube, and let's try injecting it. Well, that worked okay until you got a small stone between that colder and the anhydrous knife, and it stopped that colder from turning. Well, then the next thing you know, you ended up with a big old muskrat house of residue, and that wasn't very fun to unplug. Plus, right. the knives were out in about 500 acres, and you'd have to change them. So we kept playing with this idea. And, well, there's got to be a better way. And then uh, Warren Streffling come up with the idea. He was a big no-till promoter down in Berrien County that sure. had the Rawson system. And uh, he come up with the idea, well, what if we put a coiled spring on there and, and put it behind that? colder so then when the residue got in there it would flip up and let that residue through and it wouldn't plug up and out of that came the pretty much the final version where we went to a high pressure pump john duke plump and uh, had a red ball monitor on it that would and then we would pump that 28 percent and inject it into the ground behind that colder right. stop the plugging and stop the flashing on the planter so bad and Ray came up with a one-pass system because it was hard for him to side-dress all the corn acres he was growing up there at that time, you know, yeah. six, six, ten thousand acres, something like that. And, you know, he couldn't get on there and side-dress all sure. that acres in a small enough window there. So by going to a one-pass uh, system, he even got crazy and added a sprayer on there, too. So yeah. then he could plant all one pass with half a gallon of diesel fuel the acre and he was had all his 28 percent on all his fertilizer on had his weeds burned down and yeah it, and that was working pretty good for him right i can i have to tell you my ray rawson story uh farwell where he's located that's the place in the state of michigan i think where agriculture turns to forestry north of there there's not much good farmland left anymore but my uh, my wife grew up in East Lansing, and her dad was vice president and dean of students at Michigan State. And they had a cottage at Lake Isabella, which is west of Mount Pleasant. And our whole family would go up there for a couple of weeks in the 1970s. And every year, I would go over and spend an afternoon with Ray. And every year, he had, he would sell his planter after he planted in the spring, and he would build a new one for the coming year. And that guy had something new every every year I went there. I learned learned something new from him. Well, yeah, I just saw him uh, two days ago. I stopped to see uh-huh. how he was doing. He's, we still talk on the phone, and like our Canadian friends say, we swap lies about no <laughs> till, right. and then uh, and change ideas. And uh, it's right. good to see him when it's again now and then. Uh, we still work on the herbicide issues and some of the weed control issues together. 
Well, you talked about going down to Wooster at their 50th anniversary and talking about transitional no-till. Uh, tell us about what you think about transitional versus true no-till and how you get people started and how you move them along. Well, you know, it took me a lot of years to understand what was going on here. I had to teach a class in soil health, and then it kind of all, all gelled together, sort of, you might say. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you take a conventional till field and you, you start no-tilling it, depending on how it's been used in the past, or I say abused in the past, sure. depending on what its fertility level is, what its physical condition is, whether it's compacted or not, whether it's uh, biological, physical, and chemical comes into big play in the, in the no-till system to make it all work. All sure. those things got to be in harmony. And, you know, to take research at universities is often funded for three years, maybe looks at one aspect of the no-till system, and then they're done. Then they go on to something else. Well, the thing about that is the soil hasn't really transitioned to true no-till, I call it, because the food web becomes very important to help heal the soil. The, the microbial, the biological activity, your earthworms, you know, your mycorrhizae and all of these fungi. No-till is predominantly a fungal-dominated soil once it gets enough years in. Sure. And then these mycorrhizae, from what I read and understand about it, then help to release a lot of hard-to-release nutrients like nitrogen and organic nitrogen, organic phosphorus, organic potassium, Mm -hmm. and they provide uh, additional source of nutrients for the plants. And we used to have a Great Lakes no-till discussion group. Sure. We'd hold meetings meetings with the Canadians and we'd talk. And a lot of the Canadians and and the Michigan farmers that came there, they'd been in no-till maybe nine, ten years already. Ray was one of them. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, Jerry, we don't need as much nitrogen to grow corn anymore. We can grow a bushel of corn with one half to three quarters of a pound of nitrogen to the acre. Why is that? Well, we really didn't understand the food web as well back then, you know. But mm-hmm. It was the food web, the microhorizon, and all this uh, biological activity in the soil that was helping to release this organic nitrogen. Now today, oh, it's it's so fun. It's been such a journey <laughs> to watch this whole transitional thing. You met these farmers that saw these things like this. And then down the road, you, you get this research, and you've probably seen it too, comes out of so-and-so. says, mm-hmm. yeah, you get a lot of organic nitrogen from the long-term no-till, you know. Jerry Hatfield is at the yeah. soil tilt lab, but, has observed a lot of this stuff too. That's why he helped me write the article. He had a lot of insights from being there at the soil tilt lab, and he and uh, you know it, farmers call up and say, "Well, we want to save on our fertilizer." Well, the way you save on your fertilizer is to stay in long-term no-till and then watch this transition over to a fungal-dominated soil that provides organic nitrogen, and you don't need as much nitrogen input. Then along came a fellow from, a lot of my knowledge come from professors all over the country. Along came a fellow from uh, Texas A&M. His 
and he came up with the Haney test. Sure, Rick Haney, yeah. Yeah, Rick Haney. Now here's Rick Haney's test that's recognizing this benefit of this organic nitrogen and organic uh, nutrient sources and giving you credit for it. Mm-hmm. And back then when we, we, we knew we, were, we had the credit there, but we didn't have a way of measuring it. Now, Lord, today we got a way of measuring it. And that, that's exciting, you know, right, right. to see this. And, uh, um, you know, and people that are using it are finding out they can save, you know, pretty good on their fertilizer bills. Right. And I talked to some long-term dairymen that have been no-till, like Claire Armbusmach. He's in the by Fowler area. Sure. And he's been no-tilling now. He was chairman of the district way back he's been no-tilling now for 40 years and he's a dairyman and he also yeah. has beef cattle mm-hmm. and uh he says jerry he says i keep cutting back on my nitrogen i need less and less every year yeah and uh it's it's exciting to meet people like that that are putting it to work and seeing the benefits of it you know we got a uh, we got a farmer here in Wisconsin uh, up around Juneau, and uh, they got about a thousand acres, I think, and they're milking two hundred and fifty cows. So he's got some manure. He and he's been very successful no tilling, even uh, seeding green. He buys no fertilizer at all, no synthetic fertilizer at all. He doesn't need it. Yeah, Claire's finding out with a Haney test. You don't yeah. need a lot of fertilizer either, you know? Yeah. So in here, you said the real transition to this would take seven to eight years, but then we see no-tillers who, after two years or three years, are already seeing the benefits, and then they just kind of multiply with them the longer they get. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't see, you don't see the benefits. I just think you don't get the maximum benefit exactly. until you've been in right. there seven, eight years. And again, it, it goes back to the history of the field. Mm-hmm. How has it been used or abused? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. If it's right. got chemical limitations, if it's got herbicide carryover issues, if it's got liming issues, you know, all these things need to be corrected right. to make the no-till system work. Right. We killed a lot of alfalfa, lime, and cornfields uh, that had been sprayed with atrazine, and then we no-tilled alfalfa in it. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that we was going to release that bound up atrazine and kill our alfalfa. Yeah. We got a lesson that down in Van Buren County a couple of years after we killed a few fields. We decided we had to do a little better job of planning further ahead for no till right. alfalfa. <laughs> when I was a kid in the late 40s, it shows how old I am. My dad was my dad was seeding cover crops. We used to seed red clover in the in the fall in the cover crops, and we'd plow it down at that point. But it just seemed that within the early fifties or so, we lost interest in cover crops, and now it's coming back big time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Again, it helps that transition to no-till. Mm-hmm. You get some roots in the soil. You get some pumping up of nutrients being released at the surface, you know. You, right. You get that one study out of Delaware showed the guy doubled his potassium on the surface with rye and hairy vetch. Right. After eight years of continuous corn, rye and hairy vetch cover crop, he doubled his potassium on the surface because those 
and roots brought all that potassium up to the surface and left it there for his no-till. So yeah, that's uh, that. Plus the weed suppression, you know. Again, weed control is heavily dependent on herbicides and by using cover crops and using them multi-crop rotation maybe with alfalfa we can help with some of those weed resistant issues that pop up too what would happen if glyphosate or roundup got banned what would happen to the no-till acres Uh, we'd just go back to paraquat (laughs) (laughs) that's what i've done yeah and that's partly because of weed resistance yeah right Uh, and now you got banbill tolerant soybeans yeah Paraquat and Bambil is your friend. Right. So 24D. Um, yeah. 24D is still a good product. It still works. <laughs> right. It, it's amazing when you look at the herbicides. When we started No-Till Farmer in 1972, oh, Lord. The, the, big, <laughs> the big ones were Paraquat, Banville, which is Dicamba, Princept, and Atrazine. Yep. And by God, we're still using all these today with maybe the exception of Paraquat, which has been replaced by Roundup. But the others are still... Still there. Well, guess what? I'm getting some tough to control lambs quarter. Guess what I've done? I've gone back to Paraquat, Atrazine, and Princep. I'll be darned. You know what? And a little bit of Banville on there, too. Yeah. And I tell you what, it's a nice program still, and it's off pat, off label, so that, you know, the products are fairly cheap. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing what a pound of Simazine and a pound of Atrazine does for controlling right. weeds and i've had some issues with uh, like crabgrass large crabgrass some of those tough to, and it, it picks up some of those that atrazine don't so yeah yeah it's they're still good products i mean and if you haven't been using them then you don't have the near the resistance out there population because you haven't been using them you know because we've been right. using roundup ready and roundup 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 you know right one of the concerns with cover crops with growing uh, corn and soybeans for for grain is uh, it gets pretty late in the season when you can get your cover crops seeded if you do it after harvest. But like in Michigan and here in Wisconsin, we got so many dairy farmers taking off silage. And that land, you haven't got much residue left, and they take it off early. That's a natural for cover crops on silage ground. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good place to, to, to put a cover crop. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesser once more. So my reader question of today is I was doing a podcast with another grower and uh, we got to talking about whether no-tillers need colders anymore or not. And we looked back and Julia Gerlach of our staff had done a story recently on do no-tillers need colders anymore? And while they were once essential for no-tilling, that's not necessarily the case anymore. In fact, a no-till farmer survey that we did in 1991 showed 94% of our no-tillers were utilizing colders on their planters to slice through surface residue ahead of seed openers and work a little bit of the soil. But you look at the latest 2021 no-till operational benchmark survey and that indicates only about 43% of no-tillers use them today. So it's been probably cut in half. What's the reason? Latest 
planter technology and all the attachments, you don't need those colders to slice through the soil. And uh, some of the original reasons we needed colders to loosen the ground and allow us to penetrate better and to get loose soil to close the seed trench, we've replaced all those things with better ideas. So here's a question that came up from a listener to this series this morning. So half the people that were using colders 15 years ago or so are no longer got them on their planters. Thanks to Frank Lesser and Jerry Greiger for today's conversation. Be sure to tune in to the next episode to hear about how Jerry is continuing to experiment on his 140-acre farm. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nutel Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.